Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, my name is Jackson Reinhardt, and you are listening to New Books in Christian Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm joined by Keegan Osinski to talk about her new book, Queering Wesley, Queering the Church, published by Cascade Books 2021. Fifty years after Stonewall, the experiences of LGBTQ plus Christians are, rightfully, beginning to be received with interest by their churches. Queering Wesley, Queering the Church presents a prototype for thinking about Wesleyan holiness as an expansive openness to the love and grace of God in queer Christian lives, rather than the limiting and restrictive legalism that is sometimes found in Wesleyan theology and praxis. This inventive project consists of queer readings of 10 John Wesley sermons. Reading these sermons from a queer perspective offers the church a fresh paradigm for theological innovation while remaining in line with the tradition and legacy of Wesley that is so central and generative to the eponymous churches in his name. Arguing that a coherent line of thought can be drawn from Wesley's conception of holiness to queer holy lives of LGBT. BTQ plus Christians, Queering Wesley, Queering the Church playfully utilizes queer theory in a way that is fully compatible with Wesleyan teaching. This book aims to be a first step in seriously considering the theological voices of LGBTQ plus Christians and the Wesleyan tradition as a valuable asset to a vital church. And Keegan Osinski is a librarian for theology and ethics at Vanderbilt University and a member of the Church of the Nazarene. Keegan, thank you so much for joining me today to talk about your new book. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Well, this is also special for me because Keegan and I have known each other for, goodness, three years. She graduated uh, the semester before I came to Vanderbilt, and you were already working as a librarian in 2019, correct? That's right. I've actually been here at Vanderbilt in the Divinity Library since 2013. Oh, fantastic. Well, before we get into the content of the book, elaborate a little bit on your academic and scholastic background and how that led to the creation and publication of Queering Wesley, Queering the Church. Yeah, so um, I did my undergrad at Point Loma Nazarene University, um, and I studied philosophy and theology. Um, I actually had never heard of the Church of the Nazarene or John Wesley before I started there. Um, I actually started college as a journalism major. Um, I knew I wanted to write. I wanted to be a writer. Um, But, you know, as is the case with many Christian liberal arts schools, uh, you have required, you know, Bible classes, theology classes. And I took a New Testament class and I was just fascinated. I was like, this is so interesting, so wild. I, you know, I think after the first semester, I just went and changed my major uh, to philosophy and theology um, because I just wanted to learn more about that. And the longer I was, you know, involved and learned about Wesleyan theology specifically and the Church of the Nazarene, it just became kind of my community. I started going to Nazarene church um, and just got involved in it there. And it, it's kind of funny. I, you know, I never really set out to be a Wesley scholar. I still wouldn't call myself a Wesley scholar by any means. Um, but it just kind of fell in my lap, this idea. Um, after I finished undergrad, I did library school um, at the University of Washington because I knew I wanted to be a theological librarian. 
because uh, I wanted to study. I still, you know, I love being part of the academic environment and teaching, but I didn't think I was really cut out for the whole PhD kind of rat race situation. Um, it made me really nervous. Uh, so, I, but I, you know, was like, oh, I could be a librarian and realizing that there is subject specific librarianship was exactly what I was looking for. So I did my library degree and then I started working here at Vanderbilt and uh, did a master's of theological studies in the divinity school. And yeah, I took a queer theology class with Ellen Armour. And as part of the, you know, final term paper for that class, I kind of came up with this idea of like, what if I took one of John Wesley's sermons, just because that's kind of, you know, the area that I'm in and and the community that I'm a part of and, you know, subjected it to a queer reading. Like what would happen? What would that look like? And it was really fun. (laughs) So I, you know, it started as, you know, an eight page conference paper that I presented at the Wesleyan Theological Society that year, which was, I guess, the spring of 2017. And I, you know, fleshed it out into a, you know, term paper sized thing. And it just, you know, that was the, that ended up being the chapter, uh, circumcision of the heart in the book. That was the first, uh, chapter that I wrote. Um, and then the following year, or I guess two years after that, 2019 is when I graduated. So that's when I wrote my master's thesis for the program. And I kind of was like, not sure what I wanted to do. Like I had a couple different ideas and interests. Like my main, um, you know, scholarly interest is actually uh, ritual theory. Um, And so I kind of wanted to do something in that area. But at the end of the day, I was like, I'm working full time. I just need to, you know, get something done. And I had had so much fun writing this one Queering Wesley paper. I was like, you know what? I should do a couple more. Um, so for my thesis, I wrote two more chapters, basically. They ended up being um, On Perfection, I think, and The New Birth, those chapters, as well as um, a good chunk of the introduction. Um, so that was my master's thesis, uh, which was, again, it was just really fun, really generative. Um, I got a lot of really good feedback. People were interested in it. And so I was like, okay. I, I, this is a bigger project. I can keep doing this. I can turn this into a book. So the summer after I graduated, I sent off a proposal for the book project. Um, I was able to do a summer fellowship thing at Point Loma, my alma mater. They have a Wesleyan center there. So I got to stay on campus and read through all of John Wesley's sermons and decide which ones I wanted to put in the book and finish up the proposal. And yeah, so it got accepted that fall. And then I finished the manuscript uh, in 2020. So during the pandemic, (laughs) which was fun. And then yeah, it came out in July of 2021. So that's kind of been the uh, journey of the book 
and it's very exciting to have it out. <laughs> no, now. no. I think it's uh, you, 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 you describe writing the process as fun and generative, and those are two adjectives that immediately come to my mind when I was reading it. It was it was playful, and 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 you say it is this playful utilization of queer theory, which I thought was not only generative, but it was also provocative and in a good sense it was it was every every way you interpret and interrogate a sermon is provocative it provokes something that's just you know me as a traditional uh or, or rather raised in a traditional wesleyan pentecostal united methodist environment never would have read wesley in such a way so that's so thank you for that um i guess my first question is obvious it's the main one why wesley Wesley described himself, in his words, as a high church Tory. He was a monarchist, much like his parents. Uh, and yes, he did have certain radical tendencies with, you know, slavery and some women issues. But you even you even mentioned one of your your chapters that he had a lot of colonialist assumptions, a lot of racist beliefs. So, uh, it, why go? What does Wesley have to offer? for queer theory, and then vice versa? What does queer theory have to offer for Wesley and his tradition? I think, yeah, um, Wesley as a figure is just so foundational for Methodists, Nazarenes, you know, Salvation Army, all of these folks who have, who are part of this like pan-Wesleyan, you know, family um, that, and it just seemed like an obvious kind of, kind of figure to look at. Um, additionally, I just remember when I was first reading some of Wesley, um, in undergrad, because it was a Nazarene school, we had a class that was called Doctrine of Holiness, I think, um, where I kind of got introduced to Wesley and his ideas of holiness, um, and, you know, kind of Arminianism and like some of those important ideas in Wesleyan theology Um, and coming from a more reformed background, it was really interesting and refreshing for me. Um, And so I remember just being like, wow, this is so like open and like, there's just so much space here. Um, And then as I continued to, you know, study and get into queer theory and stuff like that, um, I just found, you know, there there wasn't as much conflict as I would expect. Um, or at least there is space for this playfulness, right? So whereas you might, well, when I was starting to read the, the sermons, I kind of was expecting there to be a little bit more like um, explicit, you know, uh, puritanicalism or something like this. Um, but it really just wasn't there. And I was like, all right, cool. (laughs) Um, so we can kind of do something with this. Um, and there's just so much about Wesley and his thought that is focused primarily on love. Right. And especially a lot of the secondary, um, sources and work that's been done in Wesleyan theology, you know, in the tradition since Wesley himself lived, um, is very much focused on love, care for the poor, care for the neighbor. And all of that is, you know, inherent in Wesley's work itself. And so I figured if you kind of just focus on that, um, there, you can really do a lot, um, in terms of thinking, 
about different ways of loving and different ways of being mm. uh, that lend themselves to this um, queer, queer thinking and queering, even though, of course, again, like I don't, I wouldn't ever say like, oh yeah, Wesley himself, like he would be all for gay marriage or something like, uh, yeah, no. <laughs> um, but that doesn't mean we can't, you know, and that doesn't mean we can't use his work to support our uh, work now. Exactly. And in some sense, he is a queer figure insofar as he had very odd relationships, especially with women and with other, and with men. And so I think there's there's something there, but but you're right. It's 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 about the compatibility that that's you're you're unfolding. So you've mentioned terms like queer, queerine, uh holiness in that last question, Wesleyanism. Can you give us kind of you you have a adjective, noun, and verb for queer. Can you just kind of elaborate on how you're using queer within this book? And I think what's important also is how you're distinguishing holiness within this queer perspective. Yes. So queering, I use queering as a verb mostly to talk about this problematizing, this questioning. It's a methodology of, um, I think, I don't know if I can curse on this, on the, <laughs> but um, in the book, I say it's it's fucking with, right? Yes, um, yes. Which, you know, I'm glad that they didn't make me take that out because that it's so, it's such a useful word there, right? Because it has that little provocative edge, but also it, it's descriptive. Um, and also it has to do with sex, right? So all of these things are really inherent in this word queering. Um, so problematizing normative assumptions around sex, gender, sexuality, um, and even like relational hierarchies, that kind of thing can be involved. Um, So that's how I use it there. And then, you know, as an adjective, anything that could be seen as um, actively queering, right? So a queer theory is theory that is problematizing these normative assumptions, right? Um, Or a queer reading is the way that I'm reading, which is doing this this kind of queer work um, that has to do with calling into question, problematizing, um, you know, messing around with uh, that's that's how I like to to think about it. Again, like this really playful uh, way of thinking about it. Yes, and then holiness. Wesley birthed at least a few generations after his death this holiness movement. Uh, churches like the Nazarene really focus on holiness, but you kind of augment traditional definitions of holiness uh, through this queer perspective. Can you elaborate? Yeah, I really appreciate, uh, and I I cite her several times. I think Mildred Bangs Winecoop. Uh, she is a Nazarene theologian teacher. Um, she her book Theology of Love um, is really foundational. I think in a more progressive way of thinking about holiness. Um, and her main takeaway, which she pulls, you know basically directly from Wesley is that holiness is perfect love of God and neighbor. And that's kind of what I just take as my foundational definition of holiness. Um, 
especially when we're talking about holiness in terms of Christian perfection, right? Which is, again, this idea of, of this Wesleyan idea of the, that Christians should strive for and can achieve a certain level of cleansing from their sin um, and becoming perfect in a certain kind of way, which I and many others uh, interpret as this perfection, as this being filled with perfect love. Um, so it doesn't discount or, you know, it takes into account that we're humans, our bodies are still, you know, fragile, we still will get sick, we still, there's a certain level of ignorance that is innate in humanity. That doesn't mean it's sinful. So that's, that's how, you know, the Wesleyan idea of Christian perfection and holiness comes in into play. Um, because you can make mistakes and still be considered perfect in a certain way if you are completely full of perfect love, right? So this is kind of the the, the general understanding that I, I appreciate of, of Wesleyan holiness and what that means um, for us as Christians, um, as well as the nature of God. So this idea that God's holiness means that God is perfect love. Uh, so you have a certain, there's lots of different ways of thinking about holiness, right? As like separation from evil is one that, that we think about a lot or separation from sin or something like this. Um, but the main way that I think is helpful to think about it is based in love primarily, uh, which involves you know, not separating. Um, you know, one of my favorite uh, images of holiness in this way is uh, the hemorrhaging woman, right? How she touches Jesus as a holy figure um, and is not struck dead like Uzzah in the Ark of the Covenant, but rather is healed because of Jesus's holiness um, as perfect love for her, you know, state or whatever, something like that. That's just an example. No, I, I, I love that, that, that story because Jesus in the Mark, he stops right in his tracks and he says, my power has, my power has left me. It's that, that, and that if we, if we go with kind of your reasoning of holiness is love, that power of love had been, tra- had been transformed, had been transferred. So I, I, I love that story as well. So to speak on, Holiness on perfection, speaking to the second part of your title, how can queers, queer Christians, and and I think you even indicate towards the end of the book, those who are not even associated with the church, how can they revitalize, uh, influence, help the church, especially at this time of declining attendance and maybe state doctrinal controversy on the issue of LGBTQ plus, how can this uh, eth- this queer optic, this queer perspective of holiness and love, queer the church? And what is a, what does a queer church look like? I think the idea of queering the church is really about this new perspective that I think can be offered. I mean, you mentioned you know having grown up in a Wesleyan tradition and then reading these stories. And being like, oh, or or these sermons and and the stories within them and seeing them from a different perspective and and what that can do. Um, You know, I've gotten feedback from other people, from pastors who I think one of the chapters, the chapter on the wedding garment, 
um, I heard from someone who was like, I will never preach that passage the same way again, because the way that you talked about it just is so revelatory in a way that, you know, it, it just being able to look at it from a different perspective can change things. Um, and I think listening to queer folks and listening to the ways they read the Bible or read, you know, our like foundational figures as source material um, can actually change things and change people's minds and change the ways that we interact with each other. Uh, one of the people that I really appreciate that kind of has helped my thinking in this way is Elizabeth Edmond. She has a book called Queer Virtue. Um, I do cite that in the book, I think again, several times. Um, because she kind of talks about this, like her thesis is that queer folks have their own set of virtues, basically, that come out of the queer experience and what it's like to live um, in, you know, a hostile uh, society um, that requires our own ways of being and thinking and loving and, you know, um, family building, for example, Um and so these virtues can either map directly onto traditional Christian virtues or they can really supplement them. And it's like, yeah, the church can really use some of this. Um, so I think, I think that is something that this book can also offer in terms of uh, presenting these other options as well as, you know, supplementing traditional virtues and ways of thinking um, that are nonetheless queer, right? And maybe have been forgotten as such because they've been uh, supposedly traditional for so long. No, I, I completely, I completely agree. And you mentioned Christian virtues, the corollary of that being vices. And your, in, in your reading on the circumcision of the heart, you mentioned uh uh, a part of that, a expression of a circumcised heart is humility. And yet you say that queer humility maybe isn't the kind of uh, humility that we may traditionally associate, right? There, there actually may be a pride within that humility. Can you elaborate? Yes, that's kind of one of my favorite little twists that I do um, because Wesley, I, mean, I don't have the exact quote, but his definition of humility is more or less proper understanding of yourself, right? So traditionally, right, we think of that meaning, like, don't think you're hot shit, right? You need to, like, think properly, like, bring yourself down a couple levels. You're not that great, right? But in reality, especially queer folks have been told their whole lives, you're wrong, you're sinful, you, you know, are like an abomination. And so reframing that to, in Wesley's words, think properly about oneself means actually we need to bump our thinking of ourselves up. We need to have more pride. <clears throat> and that is actually going to be humility um, because the proper way of thinking ourselves is actually better and more beloved than we have been told that we are. And so the, it, it's this, you know, fun little, little flip that happens that it turns out 
humility looks a little bit more like pride. And, you know, a lot of people like more traditional uh, folks might think like, oh, like gay pride, gay pride month or gay pride parades. It's like, they're like, whoa, calm down there. Um, But in reality, it's like, no, this is what people need because they've been told for so long how bad and wrong they are. And so true understanding of oneself means seeing oneself as good and beloved and, you know, uh, able to contribute to the church, for example, right? Which is something that we're told that we're not allowed to do. Um, So real humility might be um, heterosexual leaders of the church stepping out of the way and allowing queer folks to step forward and do some of this uh, transformative work. Yeah. And and you mentioned a part of the Sermon on the Mount, which I thought was immediately clicked with me about how the lowly shall be exalted and the exalted shall be brought down low. And so even, and so there is this biblical warrant, even though you're not really doing a biblical exegesis, there is this biblical warrant for those who have been marginalized to be given that voice. So I, I do appreciate that. One of my favorite chapters in your book was connecting predestination to gender and sexual essentialism, at least is how I understand it. Can you elaborate on, on that? Yeah, that one was kind of tricky because I, so basically my methodology when I was, was doing this was um, I would just read the sermons over and over and over and over until something clicked or, you know, there was some kind of spark. And I was like, okay, here's what I'm going to write about. And so for that one, I think it it was this idea, obviously, Wesley himself was against predestination and fought very hard um, against it. And so I kind of was thinking it about it in terms of uh, the like born this way argument, where um, you have this idea of like, oh, you know, gay people are just born gay. And so there's nothing you can do about it. Therefore, they should be accepted. And that's, you know, that is a a valid argument that lots of people make. However, I think it is not the queerest argument to make. I think you can go farther and say, um, actually, what is properly queer would be to choose a certain way of being or um, to have that kind of um, autonomy and, um, you know, will to to decide who you want to be and what you want to be. And also myself, like as a bisexual person, it's it's hard to kind of say like, um, yeah, I was born bisexual, I guess, but that doesn't like, you know, essentialize who I end up dating or having sex with or whatever. And so it's much, you know, it makes more sense to me personally. I'm very, it's very easy to say, like, I want to choose what I want to do. It's not, you know, it was not decided from birth or from the beginning of all time um, what my sexuality was going to look like because it flows and changes. And I think that's true for a lot of people. Um, and so I think that's kind of where that kind of queering of the queer comes and, and, and what, what I, why I appreciate bisexuality as, as a queer identity and, and as well as like gender fluidity. And I think I make that same kind of idea about like, um, 
you know, sometimes you might feel your gender to be one way or the other, and it changes over time or, you know, from day to day or from hour to hour, like who's to say, um, and, and to kind of limit it to, oh, it was decided at birth or God decided from the beginning of, you know, the universe, what you were going to eat for breakfast tomorrow. Uh, that's not, that's not compelling to me. (laughs) That's not, um, that's yeah I'm not really interested in that um in terms of like the world or in terms of my own experience so that's kind of where I went with that when when we talk about Wesley and predestination um thinking about the limitations of the human experience being predestined um don't like it want to explode it. Let's, let's like get out of there. And that's how Wesley was in terms of salvation. So that's kind of that connection. Yeah. And I'm always reminded when I was reading that chapter of a book, I think it was by John Sanders, one of those open theists, the God who risks, right. And, and, and you mentioned so much in this book about queers risking, about taking that step. And your next chapter, I, I, you mentioned about that, right indeterminacy of knowledge or uncertainty about what's going forward is you talk about Wesley's sermon, the imperfectibility of knowledge, and how can maybe a queer Wesleyan perspective provide a way out of ignorance or a way out of our imperfection of knowledge without that kind of hubris, right? You mentioned that there are these systems of of science that impose really structured orders of reality. And Wesley, in a sense, wasn't embracing that. He was kind of taking risks with our knowledge. Yeah, he and he himself was something of right a scientist. He he has his book on uh, cures, like medical cures, and he did a lot of like experimentation, which like some of which turned out better than others. I know he definitely was like electrocuting people. <laughs> um, so like, there's definitely like uh, examples of his imperfect knowledge there, and I think that might be also the. Uh, chapter in which I do a little post-colonial critique of Wesley and his own imperfect knowledge. Um, But to that end, I really truly believe as Wesleyans um, that by continuing to be curious and um, experimenting and learning um, that we are living in the tradition of Wesley himself. I think if he were around today, he would still be trying different things, learning. Um, I I don't think he was ever kind of just like, well, this is what I decided. This is what I learned. This is the way it is. You know, you see it even in his work, in his journals, in his sermons, he, he changes his mind over the years. Like late Wesley is definitely different from early Wesley. And he would admit to that. Um, because he learned <laughs> um, and changed his mind and he was open to that. And I think that ethos is so important and useful to us as Christians today as things are changing, as you know, technology is changing, the world is changing, to remain open to what we don't know and curious to find out more rather than to rely on whatever has been decided in the past by somebody. Um, 
right? Like Wesley was in his own way a reformer. Like he was about change and he wanted things to be different and he was willing to work for that. Um, I, I think we can take, you know, a, a page out of his book and continue to do that, not be stuck with like, well, Wesley did it in, you know, back then. And so that's what we have to do now. I don't think Wesley would be happy with that. <laughs> yeah. And I think the, 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 the most compatibility that we get with Wesley and this, this queer perspective is so much that change, right? Whether it be change of perspective or in a queer sense, a change of orientation of, of body of self, etc. going to a place where there might not be that much compatibility is when you talk about pleasure or at least maybe compatibility on first read, how can pleasure be in service of not only queer perfection, but a personal and social transformation? I thought that argument was really radical of how sexual pleasure can be, can be utilized for Christian perfection. Yeah, I was really surprised. Um, so that was in the sermon, um, The General Deliverance. Um, he talks a lot about pleasure and happiness in, you know, the first humans in the garden and how that was part of, you know, what it meant to be in this state of, you know, pure holiness at the beginning and how that state of the first humans is a, um, you know, a, a peek into what will be the case at the last day, right? When all things are, you know, brought together um, in the kingdom of God. And so thinking about it that way, I was like, okay, so first of all, he doesn't say, you know, that heaven or, you know, the future, the eschaton or whatever is a return to the garden. He says that the garden is a vision of what we can um, expect in the future. So I thought that was kind of interesting. And I was like, okay, so what does that mean? What, what, what do we have as a model? And one of the things he talks about is this perfect happiness that the order of things, the way things were in the garden before, you know, sin entered the world, happiness and pleasure were a big part of that. And so I was like, okay, great. Love it. Pleasure. I was very surprised because, you know, the, that's the last thing I would think Wesley would be into or care about. He's very, you know, like stodgy, like, I don't know. He's not one to be like, yeah, I love it. Pleasure. Um, but I, I was like, great. So when we talk about pleasure, we're talking about, you know, general happiness. Sure. But pleasure, I think, for me, automatically connotates sexual pleasure, I think, or includes it in the connotation, at least. So I thought a bit about how how that would be a part of that wholeness, that holiness, that perfection of the first humans, and how sometimes experiencing, you know, really exquisite pleasure now is that kind of return or, you know, looking to the future of a wholeness of perfection. So just thinking about that connection of pleasure with wholeness um, and how that can lead to 
a certain ethic, right, of, of wanting happiness and pleasure for all people and all creation, because uh, that's another thing about general deliverance. The sermon is like it's about all of creation, including the animals um, and, and nature and all of that. And so thinking about how pleasure and happiness lends itself to holiness. Um, it, it was just, it's just, again, it's a really interesting experiment to think about, right? I, you know, I'm making claims, but also I'm just like, well, what if, right? <laughs> yeah, it's that, it's that playful querying, not looking for determinate conclusions, but asking questions. So one final question, and I emphasize one, is how might or how does queer love queer perspective, queer optic, queer theology, problematize oneness. You you mentioned the sermon that Wesley gives on Ephesians of one church, one God, one baptism. What is, so not only how does it problematize oneness of God, of church, et cetera, but then how might, I love your, your kind of two mo- models of unity. How might queer church unity look like? Right. So this idea of problematizing oneness, and I quote this extensively, really comes from Laurel Schneider's book, uh, Beyond Monotheism. And that book, I I love that book. I think it's so interesting. It it gives such a a fun way of, of thinking and rethinking, especially about this idea of like one God, one baptism. Um, and honestly, that's that's the one I'm a little bit I was a little bit nervous about putting out there, right? That like people might take it the wrong way and be like, oh, so there's more than one God, or it's like, sure, um, like, <laughs> but this idea, you know, even if you're talking about God and the Trinity, right? It's right there. It's already there. This idea of pluriform oneness or pluriform unity. Um, and so thinking queerly, um, the idea of problematizing oneness, right, this like set way that things should be, um, this normativity, queer thought will always try to explode that one normative, you know, right way of doing things. Um and so that works with the church, right? Because there's already, you know, you can talk about denominations, you can talk about congregations, uh, anything like that. There's already a multiplicity. Um, and so thinking queerly really um, valorizes this, this, uh, this um, multiplicity. And brings up the positive aspects of it. Um, Obviously, there are negatives to it. That's where you get conflict. But also, I think this is one of those queer virtues, right, is this way of dealing with conflict that takes seriously difference, right? It, It identifies and acknowledges like, yes, we are different. We have conflict. But that doesn't have to be a bad thing. That doesn't have to lead to violence. That doesn't have to lead to oppression. Um, we can still like love in, in reaction to that. In fact, you know, love itself requires a kind of difference, right? You can't, if it's just like oneness, how is there love there? If it's just one, that's, you know, again, part of this like Trinitarian doctrine of like, that's how you have love within God. That's 
part of how God can be love is because there is this relationality within the three persons of the Godhead. Okay. So, wow, I can't, I'm, that's been a long time since I've talked about like Trinitarian doctrine. Um, well, queer, but, queer, uh, queering God. I mean, it, you know, queers have, a, the queering has a problem with one. It has a problem with binary, but so it shouldn't have a problem with Trinity, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. There's just so many ways of thinking. And, you know, again, like uh, love requires difference. And so to deny difference or to vilify difference um, is a problem. And that's certainly a problem that we see in the churches today, every single day, um, this vilification of difference. So the queer way of thinking about it is to honor difference and to um, allow for love to come out of that difference um, rather than, you know, cutting it off, right, in in favor of oneness. Yeah, and I love that image of, right, church unity as gravitating towards a center as opposed Mm -hmm. to Right. There are those who believe X and those who believe Y. Everyone who believes Y can't be in the church. But you, you're you're offering a model where it's it's all directed towards towards love. So I so I appreciate that. Right. It's the the idea of a centered set rather than a bounded set. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So looking towards the future. You, you write at the end of your book with almost a giddiness. You're, you're excited to see what a, a queering of the church looks like within the Wesleyan tradition. Uh, how is that looking now? What are kind of examples of, of queering the church on, on, a, on a concrete level? And then finally, the final question is, what future projects do you have within this topic or even without of it? Like, where, where is your academic journey going to go going forward? Yeah, it's again, like I am giddy, like every time I get to talk about it, like just the fact that people are reading my work and like loving it and really like reson- it's resonating with them. They're really taking it and running with it. There's people doing book studies at their churches. There's people teaching in seminaries when they're teaching like, you know, Methodist studies. Um, and so I'm, I'm really excited to see how this book kind of acts as a model and gives permission for other Wesleyans to do this kind of work. Um, because again, like I, I, I don't think it's that hard. Like, I think I said that, like, and when I was writing it, I'm like, why has no one done this yet? It is not that hard. Like, this is so obvious to me. Um, and so I, I know other people are going to do all kinds of cool stuff with like queering Wesley, queering, you know, Methodism, any kind of like Wesleyan stuff. It's just so, it's so fertile and ripe and like, there's so much to be done there. Um, especially with, uh, I mean, the, the changes in the, the Methodist churches and all of that that's going on. Um, the burgeoning progressive denomination, uh, what, what can be done there. Um, so I just, I love talking about this kind of stuff with young people. That's another thing. Like I go, you know, I've spoken at Point Loma at my alma mater. Um, I've been engaged with students at Trevecca Nazarene here in Nashville. And there are like the young people of these, you know, evangelical conservative Wesleyan denominations 
really want to have these discussions and everyone's afraid to do it. And so I'm really excited to just like be able to facilitate these conversations and to, again, give people permission if that's what they need to continue this work and to continue this play really more than work um, to just see what can happen um, and, and, and see how we can change the attitudes of the church toward its queer members who, again, are already there and are already engaged in this work and love, you know, Wesleyan churches, love John Wesley for some weird reason, (laughs) Um, who like want to be queer Wesleyans, but feel like they aren't allowed to or whatever. But I'm, I'm, you know, here to say you can, (laughs) and it's possible. And like, let's do it. (laughs) Um, So as far as what I'm up to, I mean, I'm definitely uh, bored now that I'm not writing anymore. (laughs) I'm definitely like that, you know, annoying, like workaholic, like I need a project. So I'm kind of like bumming out right now because I finished this um, manuscript, you know, over a year ago now. But every time I get to talk about it with people, I get all hyped up again. So I'm hoping that I can do more like speaking gigs, teaching, um, you know, facilitating around this book. Um, I might even think about putting together like a a discussion uh, guide. Um, I've had a couple people ask for that because people are doing like kind of group studies on it, which again, like, I think that's so cool. Um, So yeah, I'm really excited to see what people think about it, what people do with it. uh, Cause yeah, it's very open-ended. It's, it's a lot yet to be done. Exactly. And that's, that's within its own definition of its open-endedness. I have two proposals for your, your next book. You could do queering Charles Wesley (laughs) <laughs> or you or you could do this is the really hard one queering the other Methodist founder George Whitfield. Yeah, no, I've definitely had people talk about that and just be like George Whitfield's gay. <laughs> like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. Uh, it, you you mentioned young people and I and I always remember a conversation I had with a with a fellow Vanderbilt professor who said these denominations that are splitting over the gay issue, eco, ACNA, uh, potentially the Methodists, uh, Lutheran churches, they're going to die because, as you say, the young people who care about theology, I mean, this is this is real theology. We're talking about the Trinity. We're talking about holiness and ethics. They're, they they want to talk about queer things or they are queer or they're open to queer discussion. And that that stubborn insistence of, oh, we can be kind of moderate theologically, but not on the gay issue or the queer issue. I, it's just a, it's just a dead end. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I yeah, I definitely have run into that. And again, like I talk about this in the introduction, right? Part of the reason why this hasn't been done before, even though it seems so obvious is because, you know, not necessarily of any fault of their own. But you know, these older folks are really they have their hands tied, you know, by these denominations by their institutions. Um, So even if they would want to, even if, you know, though they care and want to see this work done, they really would be risking their livelihoods to do so. Um, And so I don't really blame them for that. 
Um, but you're, you're exactly right. I mean, a, a lot, especially when I talk about Nazarenes, like they're just leaving, which I'm, I always, you know, I am constantly counseling people. They're like, oh, what do I do? I don't feel right staying in this denomination because they're not affirming. Um, and I'm like, then leave, just leave. It's not worth yeah. it. You know, like I, I don't have any illusions that the church of the Nazarene is going to become an affirming denomination ever. Um, Basically, the only reason I can stay is because, you know, I've had support and, um, I, you know, I didn't grow up Nazarene, so I don't have any kind of like baggage <laughs> from my childhood or my family or anything like that. And the Church of the Nazarene has been really, you know, a great positive community for me um, for the most part, even though there's definitely lots of Nazarenes out there who are like, who are you? What are you doing? You don't belong uh, yeah. here. I remember when you published the book on Twitter and Facebook, you were you were posting reactions that a certain type of Nazarene was having to this book. And they were they were simultaneously cringeworthy, but also kind of unintentionally funny the kind of oh, yeah, the responses. Absolutely. I definitely yeah. like I I gain power from that kind of feedback. <laughs> exactly. Well Keegan, thank you so much. This was a wonderful conversation. Uh the Queering Wesley, Queering the Church, Cascade 2021 is a wonderful, interesting, and as you say, generative book. Uh thank you so much. Yeah, thank you for having me. Great. Uh, I'm Jackson Reinhardt, and you have been listening to New Books in Christian Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. Have a great rest of your day. Goodbye.